I'd like to return to Luke chapter 10 just for a moment in light of what you've just heard again. We just heard about a martyr from Nathan. We thank you for your prayer, Bernie. Thank you for leading us in singing Newell. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, in that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Jesus rejoiced in spirit. What was Jesus glad about? What was Jesus happy about? That God had kept truth from the wise and prudent. That made him happy. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And that God had revealed truth to babes. And there it is in Luke 10, 21. It's in Matthew chapter 11 and other places as well. But Jesus rejoiced in spirit. We just heard about the Catholics, and we can read in the Bible, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that because they received not the love of the truth that God did offer them, God does offer truth to all men. It's in creation. It's in providence. It's in conscience. It's in Scripture. Because they did not receive the love of the truth, he sent them strong delusion to believe a lie that they all might be damned. But we are bound to give thanks always for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, Paul said of the Thessalonian church. And I hope that when I say the Thessalonian church, you're thinking of Macedonia. Or that you've done extra study and know that that was part of Thessaly, Mm -hmm. which was a segment of Macedonia. But we want to rejoice in that God has shown us the truth. Because if he had not chosen to show us truth, and if he had not sent men sent men to preach that truth to us, we would not know it. And we are blessed abundantly. The difference between those papists that tortured that man Daniel in the valleys of Piedmont of northern Italy is tremendous. They were so ignorant because God had blinded them, and he saw it so clearly and was willing to die for it because God had empowered him. The difference between the two is enormous. And that difference is right here in this room, and we best give thanks to the Lord and a lot of it for what he's done for us. We do live in such a pampered time that no one knows hardship compared to what those people went through. It's not even to be compared to anything anyone here has ever experienced. We're not even capable of imagining it. Paul's third preaching trip is our subject for today. God has led us to look at Paul's preaching trips and to cover the second two-thirds of the book of Acts. And so we want to look at a few things this morning about that third trip, which will help us get all the way toward the end of chapter 21 of the book of Acts. The third time in a row, the third Sunday in a row, I say to you, hoping to get your attention... You could never know God's Son, Jesus Christ, or all the blessings in Him unless God sent a preacher. Creation doesn't show Jesus. Providence doesn't show Jesus. Conscience doesn't show Jesus. Those three together don't tell you one thing about Jesus. They tell you about God, and they tell you about His moral laws of how we ought to function with each other in the world. But you wouldn't know about Him without preachers. And so again, I remind you of this passage of Scripture in Romans 10. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? God has arranged to send men. Therefore, how beautiful, and it's not a question, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Tremendous blessing. And we must be thankful for it. We must embrace it as the greatest gift we've been given, exceeding all other gifts by an unknown factor. All the other things in your life added together are nothing in comparison to this. That we have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and told about it by his preachers. God sent them, they preached, we get to hear, believe, and call upon the name of the Lord. And he hears us when we call upon him. The Apostle Paul said this about himself and his conversion in Galatians chapter 1, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. I had been chosen to be a preacher of the gospel before I was born and called me by his grace to be an apostle in my mother's womb when it, when it pleased God to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I didn't go to seminary on earth. I went to Arabia and was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus when he was converted. He was in Damascus for a while. He left that city and went into Arabia for three years. He came back to Damascus. He was let down by a basket to escape that city and so that he could make his way to Jerusalem and become the apostle to the Gentiles when it pleased God. This is God's choice, and we're learning real history. We're learning history that matters. We're learning about history that affects our lives. We're learning about history that affects our worldview and how we view things, and the hope of eternal life is all through God's pleasure of choosing Paul and other preachers to preach to Gentiles. Paul said, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. This singular man started it all by taking the gospel to the Gentiles in, in size, in magnitude, is what Paul did. And he said, I magnify mine office. It's a great office, and I lift it up. How could we Gentiles have known about a supper at the table of the Son of God? How would we know? You say we would have the gospels. The Gospels don't tell you anything about a supper except the Last Supper. I'm surprised that you said that. I'm not aware of anything in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that tell us anything about how to have the supper. All I see there is a historical record of Jesus having a supper. How would we know how to have a supper? The rules for it, the guidance for it, the terms of it, the warnings about it, and the consequences of not having it the right way. How would we know that without the Apostle Paul, who was taught in Arabia by the Lord Jesus Christ, to give it to us. How could we Gentiles have known about the supper? And the supper that we're going to have is the most important meal you're going to have this week. The other 20 meals you're going to have, or 21 or 30 or 40 meals that you're going to have this week are nothing compared to the Lord's Supper at the Lord's table with the Lord Jesus Christ. We needed Paul to tell us. And here's what Paul told us. This is 1 Corinthians 11. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, 
And here, the Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth exactly what happened at the Last Supper. And so when he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And then there are some verses given that warn us to examine ourselves and to discern the Lord's body and the consequences of not doing so and so forth and so on, that we're not supposed to have it at home, that we don't take it in order, but we take it together. All those details are in 1 Corinthians 11, and we wouldn't have them without Paul. The Gospels don't tell us anything about having the Lord's Supper. The, Paul tells us about having the Lord's Supper. The Gospel accounts of the Last Supper for, provide no guidance, no rules, and no warnings about having the Lord's Supper. Next question. Who took the Gospel to Croatia? And who took the Gospel to Dalmatia? And eventually to us? We'll come back to that. Keep those two words in mind. I'm calling it Croatia right now, and we're calling it Dalmatia, and we'll not change that word. Acts chapter 22, this is Paul recounting for the second time the testimony of his conversion. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, said unto me, Depart, get out of Jerusalem, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Croatia and Dalmatia are a long way from Jerusalem and Judea. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to Paul, Depart, for I will send thee far hence. I'm going to send you far away from this place to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And we are far away from Jerusalem and Judea and Israel. In 2 Corinthians 10, this is how the Apostle Paul described the special ministry that he had and the rule and measure of it. You're going to see the words rule and measure of him being the apostle of the Gentiles sent far hence. But we will not boast. He's not going to boast. He's just going to declare true things of things without our measure. I would never tell you anything that God didn't assign to me and that I did not accomplish. But according to the measure of the rule, which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. God arranged for Paul to get to Corinth, because notice down here, he's writing the Corinthians, and that's a measure to reach to them. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure. We did not step out of line in the charge that God gave us by coming all the way to Achaia, Greece, to preach in the city of Corinth. We didn't stretch ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you, that it wasn't part of our ministry. For we are come as far as you, also in preaching the gospel of Christ, because that was the measure of the rule that God gave Paul. Not boasting, not boasting of things without our measure. We're not telling you anything that God didn't expect us to do. That is of other men's labors. Paul didn't care about other men and what they did, and he never wanted to ride in the back of any other minister. He wanted to be the one out front. But having hope when your faith is increased, 
that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. That when that Corinthian church got converted, they'd be able to supply money to the Apostle Paul for him to go farther and to stretch himself in the measure and the rule that God gave him to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. And Croatia and Dalmatia are in the regions beyond Corinth. And not to boast another man's line of things made ready to our hand. For those of you that grew up in certain kinds of churches, the Arminian churches and the Primitive Baptists were absolutely identically equal in this matter, and that is sending traveling salesmen and calling them preachers, traveling from church to church with five or ten canned sermons. The Arminians call them evangelists. The Primitive Baptists call them elders. Both of them are doing a job that is unknown in the Bible. Both of them aren't even doing a job because it's not a job to have five or ten canned sermons and go deliver them to a different church each weekend. That's not preaching, that's not evangelizing, it's just playing a game. And this is what Paul is saying, I would never preach where another man's line of things was made ready to our hand. Just keep that in mind, I've preached that before, but it's a fantastic description of Paul's ministry. Romans 15. Now these are Bible verses. We came together today for me to preach the word. I'm not here to entertain you. And if you're looking for entertainment or you wish it was more entertaining, I'm sorry for your sake. We're jumping to a new epistle, Romans, written from Philippi. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. I've written boldly, Romans, because God's given me that special office that I magnify as the apostle to the Gentiles, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have, therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me. I would never tell you about a single miracle that God did not do by me. What I'm about to tell you and what I'm saying right now are things that God did do by me and did give me power for through Jesus Christ to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, by Paul's preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and by Paul's miracles. This is fabulous. This is what changed the world. A man raised up by God and empowered by God to preach and do miracles for the sake of Gentiles. I'm going to be bold about it because God's given me special grace through mighty signs and wonders. Remember back here, we have deeds. Next verse, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. The best definition for Illyricum is Yugoslavia, but there is no Yugoslavia today, so we've got to call it Croatia and Dalmatia and some of those other small nations that are there on the eastern side of the Adriatic Sea. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I started in Jerusalem. I went as far as Illyricum. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. 
And so as far as Croatia. And when he had gone over those parts, we're going to come to this verse today, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece, which means he was up in Macedonia. And he had gone over those parts, he pushed the boundary of Macedonia over to Illyricum. For Demas hath forsaken me, Paul wrote at the end of his life, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica. Now you know where that city is, or you should. Crescens to Galatia, you should know where those churches are, and that region of the Roman Empire, Titus, unto Dalmatia. So there's a place in the Bible called Dalmatia, and it's part of Croatia today. The Lord looked upon this pale blue dot, earth, the only place that has life on it that God created to be inhabited, and we inhabit it. But we rebelled against our Creator, and we chose death to life, and we chose lies over truth. We chose the ruin of our spiritual lives. We chose the ruin of our relationships. We ruined everything. We ruined agriculture. We ruined childbirth. We ruined child conception because we chose against God. But God had mercy upon that planet. And I hope that you can see the outline of Brazil right here. And I hope that you can see the continent of Africa, as I've pointed out before. Here we are coming in over the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. There is the island of Cyprus, and there is Crete. Here is Jerusalem right down here. Paul's home church was right up there in Antioch of Syria. Here's the Black Sea. Here's the Caspian Sea. There's the boot of Italy. Here's Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Morocco. We take a look at the Mediterranean Sea. There is Cyprus. Jerusalem is right about there. Antioch of Syria is up there. That border, that line right there, separates Macedonia in the north from Achaia in the south. This is commonly called Greece. It's just all lumped together as Greece. But in the Bible, the southern half was called Achaia. The northern half was called Macedonia. And it ran like this, Macedonia. And along here, that is Illyricum. And Dalmatia is part of it. Here's the boot of Italy. Here's Sicily. And here's Crete. And the Apostle Paul is going to take this part of the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ that's full of Gentiles, and he's going to preach the gospel to them by word and deed, empowered by God through the Holy Spirit for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we look closer, this, this loses Illyricum for us to look more closely at, say, Ephesus right here. Here's Cyprus again. Remember the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time right in this area which was Phrygia and Galatia, before he went over to Macedonia, which is right there. Here's the map of our first trip, Paul's first trip to preach the gospel. And we can expand it, but I wanted you to see that it's at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea where the nation of Israel lies, and Syria. Syria is still there north of Israel. That hasn't changed and the Apostle Paul took shipping to Cyprus, went the length of the island, and then went over to Pamphylia here, extended all the way to Derby, and then reversed course and came back, sailed home to Seleucia, and was back home. That was trip number one. Here it is up close. 
There's his home church of Antioch. He goes to Seleucia, to Cyprus, to Pamphylia, all the way to Derby, which is he's going to pick up Timothy there on his second trip, and then reverses course, comes back, and sails home. On the second trip, he didn't take shipping. He went north into Cilicia, which was a territory there north of his church at Antioch, and went by foot because who went to Cyprus? Second trip. Who went to Cyprus when Paul went to Cilicia? Barnabas and John Mark went to Cyprus. So Paul comes up to Derby, picks up Timothy there, and heads on up into Asia. And we're in Acts chapter 16 now. And so we can look at it here. Here's Antioch of Pisidia, which is Acts chapter 13, the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. He comes up here and he wants to go into Bithynia, but the Lord won't let him. He wants to come down into Asia, but the Lord won't let him yet. So he is forced to go west. And we've made a great deal about that going west. And I wrote you this week how Titus appreciated that the gospel went west so that it would get farther west than this to the nation of Britain. Because Britain had a navy and Britain had an empire that the sun never set on so that the gospel was carried by the Brits around the world and it was carried to Malaysia. But this is, this is trip number two. He got over here to Troas because he had to go west. The Lord wouldn't let him go north or south. Because remember, Jesus rejoiced that some things are hidden from the wise and prudent and they're revealed unto babes. God makes the choice of who's going to hear what when. Praise his glorious name. But in Troas, he had a vision from the Lord in the night that a man from Macedonia said, come over and help us. And so he went to Philippi, he met Lydia, he met the jailer, you know the story. Then it was Thessalonica, then Berea, down to Athens. He takes on the philosophers on Mars Hill. He spends 18 months at Corinth, and you have an epistle to that, two epistles to that church in your New Testaments. I hope that when you look at this map, you can see the little yellow dots that are the seven churches of Asia that John wrote to in, the, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I hope you can see them. Ephesus was the capital of Asia. It's a very important church. Corinth was a very important city in Achaia. And you have Philippi up here. So when you open your Bibles and read Philippi, I hope that you'll remember Philippi and what we were told about them in Acts chapter 16, how Lydia and the jailer and their families were part of that church. And you see Thessalonica. There were two epistles written to that church. There wasn't one written to Athens. There wasn't one written to Berea that we have. You can see Colossae, that though it's not one of the seven churches of Asia, it was an important church and it has an epistle. This is Paul's third missionary trip now, or his third preaching trip. And I've got to show you, and it's probably hard to see for those of you that sit in the back, but you can see that again, he starts from his home church of Antioch. He works up through Cilicia, Phrygia, and Galatia again, this territory in here. He goes to Ephesus this time, then up to Macedonia, down to Corinth, back up to Macedonia, back down to Miletus, right here, where he's going to say goodbye to the elders of Ephesus, sails for home, the Bible gives us the details, comes in at Tyre, then Ptolemaeus, then Caesarea, up to Jerusalem where he's captured. And so the third trip ends up with Paul being captured by the Jews. They're beating him to death in the streets when the Romans deliver him, and he ends up in Rome by Roman protection. 
So we can start by looking at this part of this map. Paul coming out of his church at Antioch and going through the region of Galatia and Phrygia there in the middle. So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I don't want to cover these verses in detail as I've explained to you in the last couple of weeks, but I want you to get a picture of what the Apostle Paul went through for us to have the gospel. We want to give thanks to God for that gospel that he sent us, and we want to be more evangelistic ourselves rather than just believing it and holding it to ourselves in our church. We want the gospel to sound out from us like it did the church at Thessalonica because it sounded out so well from that church, Paul said, it doesn't matter where we go, everyone knows the effect our gospel had on you in Thessalonica. He says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You know, as we go through these chapters, sometimes the apostles Luke is going to be very brief. He's just going to give us one sentence, and it covers hundreds of miles, much time, effort, and many churches. Other times, he's going to give us detailed accounts of things that were said. And so just keep it in mind that the Lord inspired what we have and preserved it for us. And sometimes he wanted to show us things and sometimes he didn't. And I love his choice. His choice is better than my choice. So I'm content with verses that just summarize hundreds of miles in many churches. And I love the details that the Holy Spirit chose to give us. And that's how we ought to always look at the Bible. We want to see how God prepared, identified, favored, and protected Paul to preach Jesus to Gentiles. We want to study his methods, his power, his content, and the results that he had. We want to give thanks, and we want to be more evangelistic ourselves. Acts chapter 18 and verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. This is the end of trip two that you read about in Acts 18.22. He came in at Caesarea by ship. He went up to Jerusalem in altitude. And then he went down in altitude back to his home church of Antioch. And so that's verse 22, ending up preaching trip number two. And when he had landed at Caesarea, landed means he was in a ship and gone up that is an altitude to Jerusalem, and saluted the church, the church at Jerusalem. He went down in altitude again to Antioch at sea level up here. So now we're in trip three. And look at verse 23. And after he had spent some time there, some time where? Some time at his home church in Antioch of Syria. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Thus, we have him in order, going up here into Cilicia and the churches that were in that area, over to Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Pisidia, and he covers this area of Phrygia and Galatia, and then moves further west. But we've only got one verse. It's, we've only got verse 23 because verse 24 is going to introduce sort of a parenthetical element, and that is about Apollos and how he met Aquila and Priscilla. So all you've got is verse 23, and when you open up to the first verse of chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus. So he makes it all the way out of our map and into Ephesus, 
after we read verse 23. Because it says Phrygia and Galatia. So we'll move from Phrygia and Galatia over to this, showing Ephesus right there, and Paul arriving at Ephesus. But we're not going to get to that until we get to the first verse of chapter 19. We have a few verses to deal with here at the end of Acts 18. And I read to you at verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the, brethren, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So Apollos is going to go from Ephesus to Corinth, Achaia. But that's not until verses 27 and 28. The reason, when we look at Ephesus, we have Apollos meeting Aquila and Priscilla is because back here in trip number two, remember trip number two from Corinth over to Ephesus, the Apostle Paul brought Aquila and Priscilla with him. We first meet Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth when Paul moved in with them and they lodged him and they sewed tents together. Then when Paul left Corinth to go to Ephesus, he took Aquila and Priscilla with him and left them there while he headed toward Jerusalem. Remember, he left them there to take care of that church in Ephesus. Paul was only there very briefly. He's going to spend three years there on this third trip. But remember, that's why Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus, is because Paul took them there and left them. And now they're there, and Apollos comes there. And we're told about Apollos. He was a special man. He was accomplished and he was fervent, but he needed significant conversion because he was in error. Our God requires worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. He was fervent, but he didn't have all the truth. He only had some of it. And so this is where we meet him, Apollos. The goal of preaching is to increase knowledge and truth. That's why we preach, is to increase your level of understanding about things spiritual. And Apollos needed that. Well, Aquila and Priscilla heard this bold man speaking, and so they took him home and showed him the way of God more perfectly. And that's described there in verses 24 and 25. He knew only the baptism of John, and he was very bold about what he knew, he knew that a Messiah had been identified in Jesus of Nazareth, but he didn't know what had come after Pentecost. It was lost on him. He, he, didn't, he didn't have the Holy Spirit that had been poured out on Pentecost because he didn't have a baptism that was valid after Pentecost as we're going to run into a group of people. He needed to be converted about the Holy Spirit and about the full place of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He only knew what John knew about Jesus. John knew that Jesus was the Messiah because he said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
But John had died and didn't know all the rest that Jesus didn't taught in Judea before he was killed by the Jews and Romans and ascended up into heaven. And so Aquila and Priscilla are able to fill him in on all the details about Jesus Christ fulfilling many more prophecies than Apollos knew about. And we read about here that in these verses. These verses are wonderful because we have been thinking about power couples for the last five months. But it is by God's timing that we're looking at this particular five verses right now, and this is a power couple. This is a couple that works together, they work the business together, they understand the truth together, and they see Apollos, detected Apollos as an error, bring him home, and are able to take on a man that was mighty in the scriptures, fervent in spirit, and an eloquent man to boot. But they're able to do it. And the Bible presents them as an equal couple. Three times out of the six mentions in the New Testament, Priscilla is first, three times Aquila is first. This is a dynamic duo of a husband and a wife that know how to work together to accomplish something together. That's a business venture that they had together in various cities and also to convert this man, Apollos. There's so many things said about him that we don't have time to review in detail. He was a traveling Baptist evangelist continuing the ministry of John the Baptist. But he was a Baptist like there are so many of in our county that doesn't know the truth. So this Baptist needs to be shown more truth. You say, why do you call him a Baptist? Because his ministry was based on John the Baptist. Should I call him a Methodist? He was a Baptist. He believed in immersion just like John the Baptist believed in immersion. And for the same reason John was called the Baptist, Apollos is called a Baptist. Because he's not the Baptist, he's a Baptist. But he, he's a great man, and he's preaching boldly, but he only knows a certain degree of truth about Jesus Christ. And Aquila and Priscilla explain to him the rest. And verse 27 tells us that after he was fully converted, ordained by whatever process we're not told, and the Bible evidence is that Apollos was an apostle. The, Apollos was an apostle by several ways in 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters. When you go to 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church had preacher factions, and they had four preacher factions. That church said, I'm of Paul. It's chapter 1 and verse 12. Some said, I'm of Cephas. Some said, I'm of Apollos. And some said, we're of Christ. And as you read through, Paul will say that God planted by me and watered by Apollos, that I was the wise master builder, and there's another builder building on what I started. This is in chapter 3. And when you get to chapter 4, he only considers two men, not Peter. He considers Apollos and himself. And he says, we apostles. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 9. And so we make a pretty safe assumption that Apollos was an apostle to be put on the same level as Paul was when it came to the Corinthian church and the way Paul spoke of him. But look at his, his ability. He helped them much which had believed through grace. In verse 27, those converts in Corinth that Paul had converted were helped a great deal by Apollos. That's what 27 tells us. He was a very good pastor that way. And verse 28 tells us he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. So in, in Corinth, 
Apollos was able to preach publicly and confound Jews that Jesus was Christ. This is one of the great figures of history. Are you content reading about men like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson? Let them all disappear and float into the breeze. Oh, they have. They've all disappeared. And their effects are basically irrelevant today. Compared to this man, Apollos was a mighty preacher of the gospel. And he met a couple converted and strengthened and taught by the Apostle Paul. And so when Apollos went, he could publicly convert Jews to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that gets us through Acts chapter 18. And we come to Acts chapter 19. Verse 1 tells us, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, that's what we just learned in the last two verses of chapter 18, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, that's the plains and mountains of interior Turkey, Phrygia and Galatia, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. So Paul makes his way from Antioch up over into Cilicia, Pamphylia, Phrygia, Galatia, Asia, and he's at Ephesus, which you can look at the map and see that Ephesus is on the border of the Aegean Sea. And so he's there. Aquila and Priscilla are there, but Apollos is now in Corinth. The Lord wants you to know these things. That's why he wrote them in the Bible. He wants you to know these things and think about these things. The first men to read the book of Acts knew all these places from the third grade on. You don't know them because you probably didn't pay it. You were probably never taught these places. You have maps in the back of your Bibles, but we want to learn them so that these places are not just empty words and empty names for places but places where God sent his gospel and blessed it to bear much fruit. I hope that when you read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, you'll think about that wealthy city in Achaia, southern half of Greece, the temple of Apollos there, incredible lasciviousness, prostitution, and immoral sexual conduct. And so when you read the epistles, you'll remember that particular city has access to the Ionian Sea on the west and the Aegean Sea on the east, very prosperous. And you'll remember some of these things. That's why the Lord put them in the Bible here in Acts chapters 13 all the way to the end of the book of Acts. But we're at chapter 19, and Paul is now in Ephesus. Paul's made it to Ephesus. That has been under the care of Aquila and Priscilla there at Ephesus. Apollos was there for a while, and Apollos had some doctrinal problems. And so the Apostle Paul gets there, and it says he found certain disciples in the last three words of verse 1 of chapter 19. And he said unto them in verse 2, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? He very likely had been set up by Aquila and Priscilla that Apollos had been in town and didn't know the full gospel story. So he has a good opening question. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Because if you didn't have an apostolic baptism after Pentecost, you weren't going to have the Holy Ghost. It was a dead giveaway. And so the question is, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, and the second question is just beautiful, Unto what then were ye baptized? 
And you've got to keep that question in mind to understand these seven verses. The key is baptism. Because he's going to assume some things in the next two verses that you'll miss if you don't look at verse 3. Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. We got a baptism just like John had. But notice, they just got it many years, 20 years after Pentecost. 20 years after Pentecost, they're getting a John the Baptist baptism. John the Baptist baptism after Pentecost had no authority, had no value. Why? Because it wasn't done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It was just done in repentance. It was the baptism of repentance, looking forward to the Messiah. But at Pentecost, it was Jesus has come, Jesus is gone, and you should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul asks, do you have the Holy Ghost? No. What then were you baptized unto? Or what, what were you baptized unto? To John's baptism. And so Paul explains. Verse 4, Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. It's true that John had a baptism, and it was the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. And the issue here is baptism. So the next verse, verse 5, is obvious. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You wouldn't get that out of just reading verse 4. You can get verse 5 by reading verse 3. Because verse 3, Paul sets the stage that the issue, men, is your baptism. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you don't have a proper baptism. John was just looking forward we're way past John looking back at Christ. Right. And so they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 5. Do you know that we have a long document on our website entitled Rebaptism? And it is a long, detailed study because this is the only rebaptism that we know about in the, in the Bible. Our ancestors were called Anabaptists, rebaptizers. Anabaptists, rebaptizers as a slur against them. They never considered themselves Anabaptists because they knew they didn't rebaptize anyone because the first baptism they got at the hands of the Catholic Church wasn't a baptism. So they never liked the term. But this is the example in the Bible of a rebaptism. And the baptism is a lack of authority. They weren't baptized with the right formula. They weren't baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They had just been baptized for their repentance that the Messiah was coming. So there's a rebaptism. This is how important details are. People like to accuse us because they don't understand terminology and they just want to use emotional terms against us. They call us legalists for being careful about details. But details are important as this example ought to show you their baptism was invalid. When they heard this, that they had a faulty baptism because their baptism should be in the authority of Christ, not John the Baptist. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. And they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. The Bible is so interesting in, in this particular matter of baptism and the Holy Ghost. The gifts of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost came without baptism. 
that came in the first four verses on the apostles and the other disciples that were gathered there. Then in Acts 2.38, the Holy Ghost came with baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then in Samaria, the apostles had to go up and lay their hands on them in Samaria because Philip's baptism didn't have apostolic authority and the Lord wanted to honor the apostles. Then God gave the gifts of the Holy Ghost to Cornelius and family before they were baptized. You say, that's a bunch of confusion. No, that's our God helping us out because we're all a bunch of little babies and we need to be led by the hand. And Peter needed that encouragement. And Peter was able to use that encouragement later. I didn't baptize them until God gave them the same gift that he gave us at Pentecost. Is that good enough, brothers? That's Acts chapter 11. And that's how the Lord does things so differently. And here comes this group, baptized by Apollos, most likely, because it's Ephesus and the timing and the context right here, but they need more. They need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and his, and his formula that he gave, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and then Paul, to show his apostolic authority, laid his hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, the next section of chapter 19 here in Ephesus. And he went into the synagogue. First things that happened, he looked up Aquila and Priscilla. They told him about Apollos. He ran into 12 apostles, 12 disciples of Apollos. He got them straightened out. And now he goes into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. Acts 19 and verse 8. Disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. What a tremendous ministry he had based in Ephesus for two years. When you look, look, at the, look at Asia, that is Western Turkey today, and that Asia, everyone in it, knew about Jesus Christ by the tireless efforts of the Apostle Paul out of the city of Ephesus as his home base. He had a school where he disputed, he traveled, they traveled to him, news was circulated so that he could say these powerful things Luke could write, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. This Asia is not Russia, China, or Kazakhstan. This Asia is Asia Minor of the Roman Empire. And they heard it. And that is still a sizable piece of property when you don't have the internet. Or an automobile. Mm -hmm. Or a moped. Or a telephone. Or a telegram. He was reduced to doing it a primitive way, and he did it, and he did it zealously. Verse 12, 11, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, I showed you a verse earlier as we led up to these verses in Acts that Paul said, I'm going to boast about the grace God's given me with mighty signs and wonders for the benefit of you Gentiles. Here is one of the examples. Special miracles, not ordinary miracles. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. How's that for an exorcism? When you don't even have to be with the person, but a hanky is carried from the Apostle Paul to a devil-possessed person, and the spirit leaves because there's a hanky in that person's possession from the mighty apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't depart out of fear of Paul, but out of fear of Paul's Christ and Paul's king that he represented. That is powerful. If you send any of your money to some of these tele-evangelists like Benny Hinn and Mike Murdoch and others to get one of their hankies, you're as bad as the sons of Sceva that we're about to read about. You are really seriously messed up because no one has ever had hankies like Paul had hankies and had aprons like Paul had aprons. But I want, I'm trying to tie verses together. When we started this morning and I went through some of those slides that I know they had, they had, they had scripture on them. They weren't, it wasn't a picture. It was scripture. But Paul said, I wouldn't dare boast about anything that God didn't do by me. Everything that I'm about to tell you, I really did do. And I'm going to boast about it because the glory that was given to me and the grace that was given to me was for you Gentiles, and I magnify mine office. And this, this is one of the examples. This is, this is huge. So you live in superstitious Ephesus of Asia. Ephesus. The worshipers of the great Diana, a stone idol. The, the, the city of Ephesus. You can go online and look up Wikipedia or anywhere you want to. The Ephesian letters. The Ephesian letters were words that had to be learned very, very carefully and spoken very carefully as incantations against spirits and for spirits. Called the, they're called the Ephesian letters. And we're going to... We're just about to run upon books being burned, and you're probably wondering, what are those books about? The books are the Ephesian letters and about incantations used for sorcery and witchcraft in the city of Ephesus. But now look what we have in this city. <laughs> We've got hankies going around. FedEx envelopes are arriving at houses, and families and individuals are being delivered from the devil by a hanky or an apron from the Apostle Paul. Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Have you ever heard that before? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. So what's going to happen in the city of Ephesus when they have witnessed Paul's power? They're going to try to duplicate it. So here we go in the next section. Verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus. Instead of using the Ephesian letters, they're now using the name of Jesus Christ. Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. They are flattering Paul's power because they haven't seen anything like it before. Saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know. And Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man, singular, we've got one man possessed of the devil. We've got seven sons of Sceva, also possessed by the devil. 
but they're not, that's a different level of possession by them. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Seven gypsies of the Jews that cast out devils by their little incantations ordinarily thought they would try to duplicate the power of the Apostle Paul. So they go into a house where there's one devil-possessed man. There's seven of them, seven against one. And the seven say, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the devils didn't, they admitted that they knew Jesus, and they admitted that they knew Paul. They sure did, because Paul was messing up their world. Because now was the judgment of this world, as I taught you from John 12, verses 32 and 33. And the one man overcame seven, beat them, stripped them, and chased them out into the street. That's going to get some publicity. Verse 17, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Did Paul tell us that mightily he preached the gospel in Romans 15, that passage I showed you, by, the, by mighty word and deed, and this is an example of it, of how the gospel grew by blessing Paul's preaching and by blessing Paul's power. Word and deed. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed in Ephesus and, and from Ephesus. Curious arts are, are tools, techniques, books, methods of sorcerers and of witchcraft. Special ceremonies, special rituals, special incantations where you would say very particular words in a very particular way and supposedly, and maybe sometimes, they had devilish power associated with them. These are the curious arts, the works of witchcraft and sorcery. 50,000 pieces of silver, that's real repentance. That's people that love the Lord Jesus Christ and have true repentance, and are truly converted. They brought all their junk, and when it was valued together, it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's an enormous amount of money, and that's an enormous amount of witchcraft that ended by the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the, help, the helping efforts of seven sons of Sceva. They helped by using the name of Jesus and the name of Paul and were punished for it, and it was known by everyone there. These are great events. You should smile when you read these events. If it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be the sons of Sceva. If it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be that devil-possessed man that the sons of Sceva were trying to rescue. If it weren't for the grace of God, we're going to be the rabble of this city that's going to be shouting about Diana for the next number of hours. It's all by the grace of God. So we should give thanks and want to help anyone that we can meet know the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. 
So in one verse, Paul gives us a big plan, a big road trip. He's in Ephesus, and he says here in verse 21, I need to go back to Macedonia and check on the churches there from trip two. Then I need to go down into Achaia and check on Corinth from trip two. After that, I'm going to sail over to Syria because I want to get to Jerusalem in time for a feast. He's going to tell us that shortly. And after that, I think I'll hit Rome. I'm working my way west. The next west stop is not Illyricum. I need to jump the Adriatic Sea and go into Italy. This man is zealous. Couldn't he have quit? And just stuck with Phrygia, Galatia, Asia, Mysia, Macedonia, Achaia? No, not Paul. Luke tells us that everyone in Asia had heard. He was ready to go west. He was going to go check on those churches west. Then he wanted to get into the boot of Italy. What a man. He's our apostle. He magnified his office, and God the Holy Spirit chose to give us some material that you might think isn't very spiritual. But if you'd think about it for a minute, if it weren't for this material, you wouldn't know a thing about Jesus Christ. That's, this is how we learned about Jesus Christ, because we were without God and without hope in the world, being aliens from the covenants of promise and strangers to them as well. Verse 22, So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So you're looking at Ephesus. It's circled there on the western side of Asia. He sends a couple of men up to Macedonia first. He's here, and he sends a couple, but he stays there for a little while longer. The Lord's timing. Verse 23, in the same time, there was, arose no small stir about that way. What's that way? It's our way. It's the gospel way. It's the truth. That way. They can call it whatever they want to. It's God's way. It's the only way that matters. It's Jesus Christ's way. It's the truth. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. What a wonderful passage. Money motivates so much religion. Money motivates so much religion and so many attacks against religion. We never want to be subject to any profit motive whatsoever. There's all kinds of different ways to look at this, and it's not worth the time of pursuing very many of them. But it's money, it's envy 
The Jews were envious. We have read about that over and over because as numbers dwindle, so does the offering dwindle. And if you, if you have built a church that is dependent on cash flow, you are in serious trouble. We never want to be dependent on cash flow so that we can follow the Lord even if a chunk of the church wants to leave because they don't want to follow the Lord. I once called a pastor here in this city and asked him about the availability of his building, which wasn't the nicest thing to introduce on a, in a phone conversation. But as I was talking to that man, I said, I appreciate the cemetery that you have. And his comment to me was, cemetery? Are you kidding me? That's a loss leader. That's all loss. We can't make any money from that. That's what he said to me. We never want to make decisions about anything to do with money like that. Just notice that this is our wealth. We are going to lose our wealth if we allow this religion to exist. And instead of combating Paul's religion with truth, they just went into an uproar, screaming out emotionally, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You know, when you can't best them in an argument, you might as well just say something stupid and stick to it. That's what evolutionists do. Science has proven it. No, science has never proven evolution. They all do this. They don't want to deal with truth and facts. What a mess in this city. But that speech right there in verses 25 through 27 reveals things to us that we never want to be guilty of and we want to protect ourselves from. Verse 29, And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. The theater in Ephesus was a large place for public gatherings, court hearings, and sport, and gladiator fighting. It was the big center in the city of Ephesus where all these things would take place at different times. And when Paul would have entered in under the people, the disciples suffered him not. They wouldn't let Paul go in there because it was too dangerous. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So he had converted some lofty persons there in Ephesus, chief men of Asia that also sent and warned him, the situation is out of hand, don't come into the theater. And this is important for us to think about that God's apostles did not go everywhere all the time and take unnecessary risks. And those that do that, you have to question if they're even scriptural. Because the Bible, Paul was let down by a basket to get out of the city of Damascus. Everywhere we've traced him so far, he went to the next city because of persecution. He was leaving to avoid persecution. We want to remember that. There's nothing virtuous about painting a bullseye on your chest and standing in front of the enemy and screaming at them. He didn't need to go into the theater. And Why were they in the theater? Because he had already been effective. That's why they were in the theater. He had already won this particular battle. He could move on. Much of Asia was turning away from idols made with hands. 
You know, Luke said that all of Asia heard. So did Demetrius. Much of Asia has heard. They're just confirming each other of the effect the Apostle Paul had. Verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Most of the crowd didn't even know why they were there. They were just upset and choosing to riot. Have we, seen, have we ever seen that in our own cities in America? They don't even know why are, they are there, especially when you see college students that are there. College students are the most ignorant segment of any society, and there they are, jumping up and down, carrying placards and throwing rocks at policemen. And they don't know anything. They've never, they've never worked a day in their lives. They've never paid a dollar in taxes. They don't know anything. They think they came from baboons. By evolution, it's ridiculous. But they want to riot because they just think it's progressive and cool and they're bored. And so here, the Holy Spirit just tells us wonderful things. The more part knew not wherefore they were come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. The Jews put forward a representative that they wanted to deflect the, the anger of the crowd away from the Jews and to the Christians. To pagans, there wasn't any difference. To pagans that worship polytheistic set of gods or a pantheon of gods, the Jews and the Christians were the same because they had one God. And they talked about a Messiah. And they talked about having a king. So this poor Jew is being pushed forward and he's going to try to give a speech, but this crowd isn't ready to listen to anyone. And so Alexander beckoned with the hand in the last part of verse 33 and would have made his defense unto the people. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Notice it was the Jews putting him forth, not the Christians putting him forth. He wasn't going to defend Christianity he was going to defend the Jews, that they weren't the ones responsible, and it's those guys. It's those Christians over there that are the ones really responsible. We've got along fine with you people for a long time because we're Jews, and while we're monotheistic, we haven't, made all the, we haven't changed all the things that Paul and his company has changed. And so for two hours, they cry out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians also known as Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk, thank you, Lord, for this town clerk. Remember Gallio, Gallio that we had back here in Acts chapter 18 in Corinth? Sometimes the Lord raises up civil rulers to be our defenders. There are nursing fathers and nursing mothers. They're ministers of God to us for good because they try to maintain law and order. They try to maintain due process. And so listen to this town clerk. You should love him. You should want to vote for him. You could pencil him in on your next ballot. Acts chapter 19, verse 35. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter, a meteor? Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, oh, sweet, if you're trying to make peace, ye ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, that is, their temples, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. 
Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger to be called in question for this day's uproar, there being no cause whereby we may give an account of this concourse. And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. That is just flat out beautiful. When we say that civil rulers are God's ministers to us for good, there's one, a pagan, an Ephesian. But it's the authority of the Roman government that that man was fearful because the Roman government could question, why was there a riot in your city? And they had the authority to crush that little city of Ephesus. And so they maintained law and order in the Roman Empire, and it benefited Christians over and over. Remember the magistrate sending the sergeants to let Paul out of prison in Philippi? Paul's going to appeal to Caesar. Paul in Jerusalem is going to say, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman uncondemned? These are the laws of a land, even though they are instituted by a pagan government, they are instituted based on a conscience given by God, an ordinary natural wisdom of how to keep a society functioning together and not let everyone turn into murderers. It's, it's just beautiful. And so the Lord shows us the intervention of the Roman Empire again through the town clerk of the city of Ephesus. And so we come to the end of chapter 19, and we're still in Ephesus. Where does Paul want to go from Ephesus? He wants to go to Macedonia, up there to Philippi, and then down to Achaia, and then back to Jerusalem. And then he said, I think I want to see Rome. I want to go to Italy. And so that's his, his desire. And when we open up chapter 20, he will head in that direction and do it very quickly. And the Lord will not tell us very much about that long red line leaving from Ephesus and going north over to Philippi, all the way down to Corinth, all the way back up and down to Miletus. Because most of Acts chapter 20 will be in Miletus, where he is called the elders of the church of Ephesus together for a final meeting with them. And that's where we get most of the terminology and words of this particular third trip, when he tells them what kind of a minister he was among them, the dangers that were threatening them, and what they needed to survive. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.